Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Yesterday's show must have went okay because I'm here again. Uh, we're back. And we have Jay's baseball tonight. Jay's take on the White Sox down at Rogers Center, 707. First pitch, Ben Wagner will have the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And of course, the game is on Sportsnet television as well. A little news as we come on today, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays have recalled Trent Thornton from AAA Buffalo and the corresponding roster move. They've designated Ryan Barucki for assignment. Uh, Barucki had a little bit of an opportunity here with Tim Mesa on the shelf to maybe carve out a role as a lefty out of the pen. But as things have tended to go with Ryan Barucki, it didn't go well. He's now 28. I don't know how much more you can throw chances at him. He struggled to stay healthy. He had an ERA of almost 10 this year. Uh, monster platoon splits. And of course, we're past the era of the Lugie because of the three batter minimum. Um, still a guy I like. Still a guy who can miss some bats. But the control issues, the health issues, uh, Brucky is DFA'd. Interesting wrinkle to that that maybe we'll get to a little later. Um, it opens up a spot on the 40-man for right now. So, um, again, Jay's back in action tonight. Thornton up, Brucky down. Uh, they're playing the White Sox, who will be short two players uh, because of vaccination status. Kendall Graveman, who's been really good at their bullpen, won't be with them this week. Um, Dylan Cease, who was not a scheduled starter anyway as well. And then Tim Anderson hit the IL uh, with a groin issue, so he won't be here as well, which sucks as a big Tim Anderson fan. This is Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, thanks for listening and sticking with us. You can get it on the podcast feed as well, um, Blue Jay's Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep questions coming too. We'll get to some of those throughout the show. Uh, you can just tweet them to me or DM them to me or text 590-590. Speaking of text messages, I'm joined, as I will be every Tuesday at 3 o'clock, by Sportsnet producer Chris Black, who is an absolute must-follow on Twitter as a Jays fan, at Down to Black. Chris, uh, welcome, and I got to bring up that, look, I, I was a little salty yesterday coming off the <laughs> fan morning show that they had Russell Martin on my first day off the show. So I want to give you an opportunity here to call out J.D. Bunkus, who was uh, blowing up your phone uh, with some some lubricated texts on Saturday. Saturday I evening. Believe. Saturday evening. It was a 10 o'clock Eastern start. I was in a TV truck here in Toronto producing the game uh, for Sportsnet. Whenever Julia Merriweather came in, <laughs> it was probably 1.30 Eastern. Uh, JD loves anytime Julia Merriweather does not perform well, which sadly has happened uh, more often than not of late. Uh, he likes to remind me that I called that a good trade for the Blue Jays, Josh Donaldson for Julia Merriweather. Now, I think there's some semantics involved, but that will be... 30 years from now, when I'm retired, <laughs> sitting on a uh, on a beach somewhere, I'll get a text from J.D. Bunkus yeah. saying, remember back when you said that was a good trade for the Blue Jays? So I told him to actually never text me again <laughs> with Julia Merriweather takes. Yeah, you'll be on a beach and some 60-year-old will come by with his tarp off and you'll be like, is that <laughs> is that J.D. Bunkus? Um, I wanted to, to tee you up for it just because I know on our show, on the fit, well, it's not my show anymore, but the Fan Morning Show, um, he has on occasion brought up your Twitter threads, which again... 
any Jays fan should be following you at Down to Thank Black. You. Some really good blends of statistics and video work um, with kind of the topic du jour with the Jays. And that's what we're going to have you on every Tuesday to kind of go through. What's what's the biggest thing we can deep dive on around the Jays right now? Every second Tuesday, we're also going to have Joe Siddle in uh, and we're going to you know get the, the former player and, and booth analyst perspective on some of those things. Uh, so just us today. Joe will join us next week and then back and forth moving forward. But yes, JD would occasionally, uh, you know, bring up your threads or bring up your takes and you didn't have a chance to defend yourself. So I just, <laughs> I'm just, you played that very diplomatically, but you've got the microphone right now and he doesn't. So I, he will have the microphone more often than, a, than I ever will. So I'm not going to get into a back and forth with someone who has a <laughs> microphone in front of them for three hours every morning. So before we get into, you know, one of your latest threads, you don't have the microphone in front of you all that often. You're a producer, um, I mean, at large for, for Sportsnet, and I know you do a lot of tennis stuff and you've, you've done some Raptors as well, but primarily you help produce our Blue Jays broadcast. So before we get into some of the, the stats and video breakdowns, take us through a little bit of what your role is as a broadcast producer and how things like StatCast and, and your your inclination to be analytical about things plays into your role as a Jays producer. Yeah, I, I was a nerd my whole life, uh, like a sports nerd, I should say. Um, but so I've been working on the Blue Jays pregame show since 2015. Um, a couple of years into that, they started integrating me and giving me a few games uh, of producing the actual game broadcast. Uh, that's gone up to about 30 or 40 over the last uh, couple of full seasons. So the stat cast, the analytics stuff, the kind of surge that we've seen over the last few years, I love it. It's, it, it flies It's right in my lane, um, and it's made our job, like, easier. These websites are so good now, Fangraphs, Baseball Savant. Um, the data is so good. The charts are so good. I don't think it can be the only thing you can talk about, um, but especially in what I try to do on those Twitter threads that you've graciously complimented um, – I try to use it to support what we're seeing. So what Joe Siddle and I talk about uh, pregame, I try to look at the data and see how it supports what we're seeing or how it doesn't support what we're seeing. Sometimes we might, I might be barking up a tree and it's it's wrong after I die after I dive into the numbers for a bit. So this stuff is awesome, and it's there really is. It used to be um, a, a a segment of baseball coverage, whereas now I just think it's omnipresent. Um, we used to have, you know, we have Mike Petriello, a guy who you're going to have on later, um, on our analytics angle segments, but now it's just part of the show. Uh, mm -hmm. Arden Zwelling talks about it all the time, and he he came on the Jays broadcast for a handful of games a couple weeks ago, and it was just a central part of what he was doing. So I really don't think it's a it's a niche anymore. I think it's just a part of the broadcast. Yeah, I remember in my, my kind of baseball blogging days and the Fangraphs days, that's like back to maybe 2010 to 2013 era. It, it did seem a little more niche and something like, hey, Brian Kenny hosting an alternate broadcast feed that's going to be a little more statsy was a big thing. And now it's like, no, if your broadcast doesn't incorporate some of this, you're behind. And, and like, like you said, those sites make the visuals, the visual aspect of it really easy too. Um, and then, you know, you have things like the, where we're on the screen up here right now is Hannah Kaiser on MLB network. And she's a part of the, the Apple TV Friday night broadcasts that are also integrating some, some new and interesting stuff. So um, it's fun. I, I think more information is always better. I think, Look, this is going to be a homer take because we're on a Rogers product here, but I think our broadcast does a really nice job of, you know, a guy like Joe 
um, you know, a, a play-by-play voice like Dan, those guys are stat-friendly and want to know what those things say, but they can communicate it in a way that's really digestible, even if, hey, you don't care about exit velocity or anything like that. You get the point. You you understand how you can see this on the, the baseball field. My, my only... And this is me turning my back on the nerd community. The one area I think we've gone too far is Rogers Center now shows horizontal and vertical movement yeah. on the, the board somewhere. And I don't know what, like, it's like looking at latitude and longitude for me. It's like, I don't, I, without the context, without the graphic, this is uh, the horizontal and vertical inches is a, a tiny step too far. Yeah. Numbers without context mean nothing. It reminds me of the, uh, the Seinfeld episode where the chicken's racing. From Newman's to Kramer's. And they're like, oh, he did that in 24 seconds. And they're like, is that good? They're like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, oh, that, ho- that slider broke seven inches. Is that good? I don't know. Yeah, this is why one of the best things about StatCast, which, again, you go to baseballsavant.mob.com, and they make a lot of this stuff um, very easy and digestible. And one of the things you see on each player page, this is something cleaning the glass does really well on the basketball side as well, is, yes, you can look at the numbers and you can get really granular, but at the top of each page is a percentile rank. So where does this guy rank in the league in this statistical category. So even if you don't want to get into what Jose Barrios's average exit velocity is and what, what that tells you, you can very quickly see at the top of his page that his average exit velocity is the color blue and it's at the very left side of the scale and it's an eight out of a hundred. So that's not a good thing. Jose Barrios eighth percentile in average exit velocity. I use that as an example, Chris, because one of your latest um, Twitter breakdowns was on Jose Barrios, who once again struggled Sunday, failed to get out of the third inning. That's the second time that's happened this year, which, as a lot of people pointed out on Twitter, he hasn't had that happen since 2017, two games that he didn't get out of the third inning. Uh, He's done that here twice in the opening months. Uh, His numbers overall, not particularly strong. And, And hey, if you want to look at StatCast stuff, we can, we can look at a lot of stuff to try to contextualize. Did a guy have some bad sequencing luck? Did he have some bad fortune on balls in play? Um, do we expect some of this stuff to normalize? Well, StatCast creates an expected ERA based on the batted ball data and your strikeout and walk rates. Uh, Jose Barrios' expected ERA based on that stuff is 716 right now. Uh, it makes his 562 ERA look downright fortunate. Um, <laughs> you know, he's still not walking a lot of guys, but he's really not missing bats. And the hard hit stuff is pretty significant. So, Chris, um, we're going to get into this. We're going to get into some of what you pointed out in your Twitter thread. But high level first, there are a lot of things you could be concerned with about Jose Barrios. What stood out to you the most as, hey, Priority A1 is fixing this. I think there's different ways of measuring the quality of a pitcher's stuff. And you can do it in a bunch of different ways. But one simple way of doing it is if I throw a pitch in the strike zone, can I blow it past guys? Can I get swing and miss inside the strike zone? It's the Kevin Gosman thing. Yeah. He throws it in the zone more than anyone. Yeah. Batters swing at his pitches more than any other pitcher in the league. And he's still an ace. Yeah. If you need to, if you need to rely on getting batters to chase outside the strike zone, it's harder to have sustained success. So with him, he's never been like other, Jose Brios has never been like otherworldly in terms of swing and miss in the strike zone. But this year it's literally alarm bells, red flag, whatever you want to call it. So like, I think it's the number that I put in my thread was he ranks 400 and something 
out of 427 pitchers who have appeared this year in terms of swing and miss in the strike zone. So that's just a really, really poor number. It's somewhere around 10%. Yeah, it's it's 89.1% contact rate, so yeah, it would be so 10.9% swing and miss rate. Yeah, and for context, again, like the best in the league, Josh Hader's getting up to 40%. Uh, Starters-wise, you're looking at like Garrett Cole up at 27 28%. So he's really low. We're talking like three times as small of a rate compared to the best in the league. So that is the big red flag to me, that he can't put pitches in the zone, whether it's that good kind of slurvy breaking ball or whether it's that two-seamer that was really good last year at times. He's not able to put it past people. And that's what leads to the hard contact and what leads to some of those ugly numbers that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, and it has kind of a trickle-down effect, right? And and I want to hone in on his fastball and what you might be seeing with his fastball because obviously something like a curveball or something like that sinker the, the Sinky two-seamer, they need to play off of the fastball. And what we've seen this year is Barrios is relying a lot more on his fastball. He threw 27% of his pitches were fastballs last year. That's up to almost 37% this year. That's a big jump. Now, that could tell you his fastball is really working or he's not trusting his other stuff. Um, you know, he's still... Throws his change up a lot more to lefties than he does to righties. He's really gotten away from it against righties this year, which is a little curious. I mean, that's that's normally the book on changeups, but it's been his most effective pitch when he does throw it. So um, maybe we see that a little bit more. But the curveball is the most interesting one where last year, not only was it the pitch he threw most often, it was the pitch by far he got the most swing and misses on. And that number is down. He's throwing it less, uh, not significantly less, but a little bit less. Uh, he's getting way fewer whiffs on it, though. Do you see any issue there with his curveball? Or do you think it's more a case of, the fastball hasn't been doing what's there, what's necessary for the curveball to play off of it. I think it's the latter. So what you mentioned, I, I I still think when I see his curveball, when he throws it well, it still has that big sweeping move. I still think it's a good pitch. I think he's I thought I don't think he's getting enough out of his fastball to put himself into positions where that curveball can be effective. Um so I, I really do think it's a case of the two seamer and the four seamer just not playing for him. It's not just, he doesn't walk a lot of guys. So I think, but I think sometimes we make a mistake of viewing command simply as, oh, this pitcher doesn't walk a lot of people. You can be, you can not walk a lot of guys and have poor command. Yeah. If you throw it right down the heart of the plate every time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like uh, depending on your, the type of pitcher you are, like you'd rather, especially someone who doesn't throw a lot of balls with like Barrios, uh, you trust his, his control to, to throw a strike. You'd rather miss outside the zone than inside of it. And maybe that's the issue with his fastball is he's catching a little too much of the zone on some of them. Yeah. That's what I saw. So when I looked at kind of a ton of his fastballs, it was him missing spots, not by a ton, and not missing wildly out of the zone, it was a catcher set up on the outside corner, it bleeds over the plate, and a lefty hits that ball into the gap. It was a lot of that. So, And with the other thing that I saw based off of that is they made a kind of a mechanical change. Um, he was more third base side of the rubber, what uh, Joe Siddle would call a crossfire um, kind of I love that term. Yeah. It's, it's very easy visual, right? Visually, it's like, yeah. He yeah, steps like, kind of towards like the, the Blue Jays dugout if you're at the Rogers Center, steps towards that direction, but then throws towards the mound. It can be a very effective way, especially against righties, to kind of really make that breaking ball play. But I think what's happened is it caused his fastball to be less consistent, as we said, about where he's throwing it. And it really gives, it really gives lefties a good kind of vantage point 
to hit those fastballs. So I think they they moved him uh, before his May 17th start against the Mariners. They moved him more towards the middle of the mound. They had him kind of moving direct. If you look at the, some of the videos that I posted, he's kind of just a straight line more from middle of the mound to home plate. And I think what they were hoping is that would be that would improve his fastball command. That's my guess. Um, and I do think it actually helped. And I, and partly I will say like there's a bit of bad luck in the start on Sunday in LA. Like when Shohei Otani homers off you a couple times, like he's going to do that. He's going to do that to a lot of people. Uh, I thought the first home run that Otani hit was off a good breaking ball. And he's just, he just happens to be one of the, you know, 10 most talented baseball players in the world. So there's definitely stuff to uh, work on for Brios. There's definitely stuff to worry about as well. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed as well in, in your thread and going through the stack cast is to right-handed hitters at least, um, he's not getting that fastball down a lot. It's hanging up in the zone. And some guys can work like that, but usually you want, if a guy's working up in the zone with his fastball, you're hoping that's more of an exploding fastball, right? It's the whole, there was, um, you know, a couple years ago, someone at Beyond the Box Score did this thing of, of actual velocity and then what the velocity feels like. He called it effective velocity. And it's like, okay, well, a pitch that's up, is for batter requires a slightly faster um, timing, a slightly faster decision. Something that's in versus out requires slightly faster timing. So if you have a 94-mile-an-hour fastball like Brio's, theoretically, if you're working that up and in, that could play like a 95 or a 96. But if you catch too much of the plate in those areas especially, that's that's where things get a, a little tough. And that's, honestly, he he's thrown um, that two-seamer up a little bit more than you'd like to see because that's supposed to be a ground ball pitch. Yeah, 100%. And I think you've alluded to something that I think there's a couple different aspects where it plays with Brios. One, the whole idea of missing spots within the zone. And two, where you can go throwing those fastballs up. You can do those things if you're throwing 96, (laughs) 95, 97. Now, what the other thing I alluded to in my Twitter thread was he threw a pitch, he threw one fastball, on Sunday, that was 90 miles an hour on the Ooh. dot. That's That made, again, more alarm bells or red flags, whatever you want to call it. His average fastball velocity was somewhere like 92. Again, right. lowest in like three years, I think, when yeah. I looked at it. And up. on the season, it's fine. So you, you don't necessarily ide- identify that as something that's been the problem all along. But that it's trended that way and that it looked that way Sunday is at least a minor concern. Exactly. To, yeah, to me, it's a, it's probably more of a minor concern for me. Um, but I think the interesting thing is, which we've talked about, he's durable, he's athletic, like the guy's chiseled. Um, <laughs> so I think those two things make you more kind of confident that he can bounce back from this. He'll have an extra day before his next start. Um I'm hoping that he doesn't have to go on the IL, that it's not a dead arm issue. I'm hoping it's just, you know, maybe maybe he gets five days rest before each start for the next little bit. Maybe he gets a little bit of the Hunjin Ryu treatment for a couple of days. And <laughs> to be honest, like, you can kind of do that with this team right now. Stripling's been effective. He, he He's shown that you can get three, four innings out of him every once in a while. So maybe you can get away with it without putting them on the IL if it is some type of dead arm issue. But yeah, the velocity, if when you don't have the great 98 Alec Manoa, Kevin Gossman, or even like 96, 97, you've got to be precise with those fastballs. And he just hasn't been. Absolutely. Okay. So one of the things I want to do with you on these segments is uh, a little stack cast factor fiction or stack cast trivia, stack cast rapid fire. Um, So one of the ones I'm going to throw at you right now, 
Jose Brios, among pitchers with at least 100 batted balls, batted ball events this year, uh, is seventh highest in average exit velocity. Now, again, with exit velocity, you need a lot of context and stuff. But just in terms of like a pure ranking, I think anyone can hear, hey, the seventh hardest balls hit, that's bad. Do you know who is number one in worst average exit velocity? Uh, I know at least one guy who's up there, and that's Aaron Sanchez. Yes, he's the top. (laughs) And it's not even close. Poor Aaron. Poor Aaron Sanchez. A lot of uh, Jay's adjacencies because uh, Yusei Kikuchi is one of the guys that's higher than Jose Barrios as well. Um, and also very high on the list, but not higher than those guys, uh, Marcus Stroman and Robbie Ray. So a lot of Jays and former Jays uh, littering the exit velocity uh, leaderboard. That's a lot of negativity to start <laughs> this weekly segment. Let's spin it a little bit positive to end here. One of the things we both feel very positively about right now is the performance of the Toronto Blue Jays catchers. 100%. I'll have my weekly um, 60-second fast breakdown up tomorrow. It's on the performance of the, yes, three catchers, because in addition to Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen, Gabriel Moreno is uh, OPSing 922 in May at AAA. Um, I know that we don't have as rich a data for minor league stuff, but even then, some of the defensive stuff, some of the framing stuff speaks positively about Moreno. Uh it's gotten so much that you've actually come around on, don't shop any of these guys. Keep your three good catchers. 100%. I, off season when we were all losing our minds about maybe getting Jose Ramirez, I was like, yes, trade one of the catchers, get another guy for sure. But now the part that I've kind of leaned into as the offense league-wide has kind of gone down, especially at the catcher position, is this is a strength. Like, why not just, why not just lean into... Uh, one of the toughest positions to fill from a production standpoint. And I just come back to, I have, uh, my background is in economics. So I, what I call scarcity, scarcity, exactly. This is a scarcity issue. We've got, they can, they can differentiate themselves from every other team in baseball if they lean into this. Now, like, I think you've got to get creative in terms of finding different ways to use these guys, whether that's DH whether that's finding a, another position for Mourinho, which I'm kind of leery of. Like, I people are jumping in my mentions uh, today on Twitter. Hey, he can play first. He can play third. He can play left field. It's like, slow down. This guy's a kid. Also, hey. you have guys entrenched at first and third who yeah. play every day. And if one of them sits, that doesn't help the DH problem. A hundred percent. But I do like the Ben Ben Nicholson Smith. I think was on with you yesterday. He yeah, mentioned left, left field. field. I like that idea. That's a position where you don't need to think about too much. You just go and catch the ball and throw it back in. Um, so, but I, I fully agree that this is like, this is a, an advantage for them. Um, I think catcher OPS right now is at its lowest point since the dead ball era, since they lowered the mound. And this also happens to be the best year ever, obviously small sample size for the Blue Jays catchers. Yeah. So, so 124 WRC plus for the Jays catchers and 83 WRC plus for the rest of the catchers in the league. And for anyone who doesn't know, WRC plus kind of takes everything that's happening at the plate. It strips out some of the, the variance and luck factors and park factors and things like that and scales it where 100 is league average. So the Jays catchers have hit 24% better than league average and not league average catchers, 24% better than league average period. Uh, whereas other teams on average are about 17% below average from their catcher position. So that's a huge swing at what's normally a defensive position. Yeah. And I have absolutely no data to ba- to back this up, but I alluded to it in, in that Twitter thread. Like I just think catching there's so much put on these guys from a physical perspective, from a mental perspective, 
I think it's more prone to injuries, for one, and also just like slumps offensively because they have so much to worry about that sometimes their hitting just kind of gets kind of left behind a little bit. So I think having two or three guys who you can slot in there and kind of manage around their inevitable slumps. Like, let's be honest here. Danny Jansen has been amazing. He's going to go into a slump. Also, he's hit the DL enough that the worth three months, if you include September of last year when he tore the cover off the ball, three months into the Danny Jansen is a better hitter, it's 31 appearances. Yeah, exactly. So I'm full, like I'm fully on board with keep these guys. Let's manage around what we know is going to happen with this position. And let's just let's see if we can turn it into a huge strength. The one potential drawback there, other than market value, like when you mentioned scarcity, that means trade value as well. The one possible concern there, and maybe this is a longer-term concern, maybe you solve it by, you know, figuring out a a different move, but you can't really while Teoscar's there as well, is the more DH days you have in mind for George Springer, the fewer, like in a vacuum, you could say we have three catchers, one of them's going to catch, one of them's going to DH every day, and then so everyone's playing two-thirds of the games and you rotate it through that way. You could get there, but when you start talking about Vlad's going to have a couple DH days, Springer's going to have a couple DH days, then it gets a little harder to work everyone in. But that's a, as they say, one of them good problems to have. 100%. If uh, you have three good catchers you're trying to work in. So, Chris, this has been fun. This is a a taste of what people are going to get every Mm -hmm. Tuesday in our opening block, uh, sometimes with you, sometimes with you and Joe Siddle. Before I let you go, since we're talking StatCast stuff and nerd stats, and (laughs) you're a big Blue Jays history guy as well, we can go back in time and apply StatCast data that we have now to any Blue Jay in history. Who do you use it on? Oh, to oh to understand some of the metrics. Um, like like you can get Statcast data con- to contextualize one J. Uh, Delgado. 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 Yeah. Okay. His exit, exit velos is distant. They had home run distances estimated, but yeah, the exit velo for Delgado would be awesome to see. That's a good he, choice. Yeah. I, I I was thinking Jesse Barfield for some of the outfield and arm metrics yeah. that we have. Although I do wonder if if that data existed at the time if he would have way fewer outfield assists because teams would have the information to not run on him. Um, but also, like, I was very young or not alive for some of that. So I don't know. Maybe he was playing some of those Lourdes Gurriel games where you you bobble a ball and trick a guy into uh, into running on you. He had a cannon. Know. He had a cannon 100%. The other one would be Steve. Like, yeah. seeing the metrics on Steve's slider would be crazy. The break on it, the whiff rate, all that stuff. From everyone, I watched him. I was young. But the smarter people who work on our broadcast, the – the Bucks, the Tabbies, the stories they tell about Steve and specifically Steve Slider are crazy. So I'd love to see the metrics metrics on that as well. Yeah, uh, that'd be a fun one. Um, text us in, tweet us in. Uh, I'm at Blake Murphy ODC. Chris is at Down to Black, and you can always text into five ninety five ninety. Let us know what your uh, which J and which skill you'd want Statcast data or modern analytics for to to better contextualize. Chris Black, Sportsnet producer, um, producer. Blue Jays pregame, sometimes the actual Blue Jays games all over the place. Tennis, Raptors, whatever, whatever we need. Uh, you get, you're the, this is damning with faint praise right now. You're the Kevin Biggio uh, <laughs> where we just kind of bounce you around wherever we need you. I love you. Kevin. I still have faith in Kevin. I'm not losing faith in that guy. Well, and you have discipline. to say that now that I made the comparison yes, to you. Yes, you did. Yeah, now he's my number one Blue Jay. All right, uh, Chris Black. And again, uh, very detailed analytics and video threads at down to black um, for the kind of the story of the day around your blue Jays. Thanks so much for coming in with me, man. Uh, This was great. And I look forward to next Tuesday with Joe. I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks a lot. All right. uh, So Jay stock plus 
continues after the break. And I have Jelani Morgan on to talk about his Black Jays photo essay series for West End Phoenix. Uh, in the second hour, we've got Eno Saris of The Athletic to talk about Kevin Gosman's splitter grip and why we should maybe still have faith in Thomas Hatch. It's, uh, I didn't think I'd be saying that. And then we'll close with Mike Petriello a little later and tee up tonight's Jays-White Sox game. Um, Jelani Morgan next on Jays Talk Plus, Sports at 590, The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Alish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Fun segment to kick us off with Chris Black. Again, follow Matt Down to Black. Good Twitter threads there. You can read a little bit more about Jose Barrios' struggles, what that move on the mound may have done uh, for him or to him, and uh, why Chris thinks the Jays might be able to handle having three catchers. Um, also, in terms of uh, adjustments, he's got a tweet during the break from uh, Noah Vandy, V-A-N-D-E, on Twitter. I haven't got to read the article yet, but he sent me a link to a story he wrote uh, about how Lourdes Gurriel Jr.'s recent turn at the plate may have had to do with uh, an adjustment to his position in the batter's box. I'm excited to dig in to that one and keep an eye on it uh, later today. Um, Joining us now, though, change gears a little bit, uh, Jelani Morgan, photographer, artist, photo director at West End Phoenix, jelanimorgan.com. He's a photo journalist mentor at Room Up Front. There's nothing he doesn't do. Jelani, what's up, man? How are you? Not bad, but like, thanks. First of all, thanks for bringing me into Roy Davis Jr. and Kevin Everett. What a great, what a great song to walk into. Um, that would maybe my walk-on song if I would have the choice. But anyway, um, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for coming on. Um, so, for anyone who doesn't know what your I mean, you, we can go into a lot of your backstory. You're, you're actually a big enough baseball fan that I believe you're injured right now, right? <laughs> Out the gate, first game, absolutely. Yes, hamstring. And thankfully, um, my high school friend and Jay's RMT um, had some time to see me today. So I got, like, I got, like, exactly the type of treatment I needed if I have an injury like this. So I feel pretty, like, on the same level as these big boys. So, um, yeah, shout-outs to Melissa for that as well. <laughs> there you go. The Like, the coolest slash most embarrassed I've ever felt was during the Raptors um, playoff run a couple years ago. I hurt my hand really badly boxing, and I was at a Raptors game, and it was just, like, really swollen. And one of the Raptors media relations staff was like, what is wrong with your hand? And then one of the doctors looked at it and was like, yeah, you should stop boxing, you knucklehead. You, What are you, what are you boxing for? Uh, you're a 30-year-old man. Get over it. Um, so, Jelani, your, your baseball background also is that you've been a big fan for a long time. Back in February, you were part of a Jays video series for Black History Month, and something you said in that video clip on Twitter was, I want to amplify for someone who would love it because I do. Why doesn't it look like us and how can it look like us? And that is kind of the thinking behind your Black Jays series at West End Phoenix. So take us through a little bit of your thought process launching this series and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah, so um, I don't know. I produce photos for a very long time and I make sure that it has covered like the tapestry of blackness in Canada and abroad. And 
And ultimately, like, I always wanted to bring myself into this work. And I finally had a chance with this work because I've been a Blue Jay fan since 86, you know? And so, like, I remember the introduction to the game to, from my dad. I remember going to the games. And, and at the time, the, t- the athletes looked like me. So I was really excited about that. And then when I looked at visual culture, the work didn't look like us. You know, there was, a like, Sandlot. You know, there was one <laughs> black kid. And he wasn't the main one, but he was my main guy, you know? Um, Major League Baseball, you know, Wesley Snipes was my guy, but he was, he was one of the main guys, but he was only one of them, you know? And so for me, um, making pictures that center um, a community that does love baseball was the biggest part of my project, you know, just, just to normalize this experience because I know I have friends. I have, like, community of folks that talk about loving baseball, but it just doesn't look like it when you watch it from, like, a visual culture point of view. It makes sense to me. And, and, you know, you go to a lot of games and sometimes there are 50,000 people at these games and it looks like the audience often reflects the city we live in, right? Where it's not just a bunch of white dudes out there. And, and you know, I, a part of your photo series that I've really appreciated is, yeah, you're, you're trying to highlight a lot of these athletes as well but it's a lot about the fans too um how have you found that balance when you're when you're at a game you know hey do i do i want to get cool uh shots of the players get in the dugout a little bit um look around the crowd like what is your process on a game day well as you as i told you know as you had said i'm I'm a photo director and a lot of my work you know it started off at sports and magazine so i i know about you know the you know the, the places in which these images exist so there already are amazing photographers already in the pit making those photos of the athletes. That's their job to do. That's, and they do it really well. And so uh, I try to find my space in any sort of space that I make. Um, and so that work is going to be made. And I will make that work and have, as you had seen, you know, at the, at the, the opening of the season. And, but at the same time, who are the folks that are the reason why these athletes are able to come to these games and, and make a living. You know, why, why is it that they're coming? It's because of the fans in some way, shape, or form. And so I want to make sure that that experience that people see is the reason why they come to the game. You know, a colleague of mine was like, I don't even go to the games, but I was watching your photos and I want to come. It's because we want to show the energy of what's happening in the game as much as it is the athletes in the game. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, I, I from a creative standpoint, you're – your note that there are already people in there um, taking great photos of the players and stuff like that. And I don't think it should be lost on people that, you know, guys like Ali Khan and and Keyshawn are are the ones doing that where, Hey, a big part of our baseball media that maybe is in front facing um, is also BIPOC and, you know, especially young people in the industry. And we've seen that on the basketball side too. Uh, Keyshawn obviously got so big time during the Raptors playoff run uh, too big time for some of us. Um, But no, it's great that there's a, there's a community like that um, producing the content as well. Um, What have the, What's been the early feedback to your series and the, the early returns? I, I know you just mentioned you have some people, you've had a couple friends be like, oh, I want to go to a game now. Um, do you feel a, a sort of sense of momentum with this project? I think what helped was like the opening weekend. You know, mm-hmm. we were we way out the gate. Everyone was excited. Fans were excited, engaged. Players were in the same time. And so like that sort of, like I'm still feeling the embers of that weekend. And, and as a result, um, it feels as if people are like, I'm hearing people talk about it that are not my friends. You know, my friends are saying their friends are talking about the work. And so when that's happening, that means it's extending past my own community, which is important for this work. You know, like 
ultimately, it's all about making sure that it's accessible for everyone. And when I say everyone, it's the black folks in Toronto that I'm speaking about specifically with this work. Mm-hmm. And so if that can be done through the folks that look at the work and is able to disseminate it, then like ultimately, Blake, this is doing the work that, it, that I hope it's to be doing. That's great. And, you know, I, I hope that that's the case. And obviously the photos speak for themselves just in terms of the, the quality of the photos, the photo essays and the creative. Um, I'm curious, from a, from a creative side, not necessarily a message side, or it can be from a message side, but um, what are some of the challenges you've run into trying to do this? Well, one of the most recent challenges was I had my equipment stolen. I got what? my car broken into. Yeah, my car got broken into. And I lost um, all of my camera kit. Like, Man, that's uh, awful. I'm sorry to hear that. And the most thing is the romantic part of it is like I had this really amazing film camera that to me is sort of like what allows for my photos to work in that space is that it enchants people. You know, I have a Hasselblad, which is like this old camera from the 70s. And like it is one of the, you know, you write with your best pen is what my old mentor <laughs> said. So I, that was the one. And so to have that and to bring it to the Jays game, kind of helped because people were curious about it. So challenge is not having that particular camera because like that was my joy, you know, and I will get it. I will have it back and it will be there. But if you're going to ask a very direct question, which you did, it's that specific camera that I really do miss. All right. Well, if you're listening to this and you are the person that stole Jelani's uh, camera, you you return it right now, no questions asked, to the 590 right studio. Yeah. Um, I say no questions asked, but... Keep keep your head on a swivel after you drop it off. Is all, um, man. You mentioned that 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 quote of write with your best pen, and that's something that your mentor passed on to you. Um, you also do photojournalism mentorship through Room Upfront, uh, specifically focusing on mentoring um, young BIPOC people who might want to get into photojournalism. What's that experience been like? Uh, it feels like something that can kind of go hand in hand with with your Black Jays work at West End Phoenix, um, and, and I'd imagine that. There's a there's a sports element to that mentorship since that's such a high profile thing that you do. Yeah, I can't remit sports for me. Like it's, uh, it's the reason why I, I'm talking to you. It's the reason I make a lot of my work. But at the same time, like I do appreciate being able to to pay it forward back to photography because photography has given me so much. You know, I, I have a career of it. I have a life as a result of it. I'm able to buy cute shoes as a result of it. <laughs> but now I really now I'm like thinking about how the ways in which I can now, you know, put back into photography and mentoring has been one of the things that um, I've been thinking about and have been doing. And so being with Room Up Front and any sort of mentorship program, I'm really like specifically trying to make sure that like the newsrooms are black the writers are black, the producers of this culture that we're creating um, that people take in are black. And so um, when it comes out to photo directing or photo editing, it's the people that make the choices about who are being photographers that I'm really being like conscientious of. And so being able to sort of like shift the ways in which people think about photography, um, because you don't have to just be a photographer. You could be a photo editor. You could be a Mm -hmm. photo director. In fact, you could do both. And so I just want to normalize this idea that just because you love photography, it doesn't have to just end at photography as a photo maker. You could think about ways in which you can make space for other photographers, which I've been doing at West End Phoenix and, and, and thankful to be able to do that work. And, and again, if people are want to see your work, obviously Jelani Morgan at um, on any of your socials, but uh, roomupfront.ca as well, if you're happening to listen, if you happen to be listening to this and you, you think that kind of photojournalism mentorship is uh, something you might be interested in, roomupfront.ca. 
Uh, Jelani, I want to hit you with a couple quick ones here, if that's okay. And they're more about baseball fandom than the photos necessarily. Uh, but the first right. one, I know Tim Anderson was really high on your list of, of guys you wanted to, to work with for this series. He hits the injured list before this series starts in Toronto. Um, I know that you, you posted one the other day of, uh, of Russell Martin, who you got to shoot. But who else is on the list, like high on your list of, man, I got to get this person as part of this series this year? Ooh, ooh. Um, so the twins are coming. Mm-hmm. So with the twins coming, it has to be Byron Buxton. Like I, oh, yeah. I, I, I have been thinking about his work in baseball for a long time, and and he's one of the guys. I'm a center fielder, you know. Like my work, I you know I came up as a center fielder. Devon White's my guy, so naturally he's in the continuum of other baseball um, center fielders that I want to make sure that I can photograph. And man, when he's uh, when he's healthy, which hasn't been a lot in his oh, career, no. But yeah. yeah, like hopefully we're avoiding a, a second IL stint for one of your guys. I know he struggled a little bit this year, but man, when that guy is healthy and has his legs under him, what an exciting player! You mentioned Devon White is your guy. Uh, little Jay's trivia for you here: Devon White won right. five Gold Gloves in the outfield as a Blue Jay. In the rest of Blue Jays' history. Have other players won more or fewer gold gloves in that combined? So De- Devo's got five gold gloves in the outfield. All the other total outfield gold gloves in franchise history, higher or lower than Devo's five? Ooh, okay, so I'm thinking that in the 80s, Jesse got one. Mosley might have got one. Shannon Stewart might have got one. Pilar, ooh, uh, no, Pilar did not. Tie. I'm going to go with a tie. Uh, what a what a jerk move that would have been by me if it was a tie. Um, trick question. No, it, it's it's six. So Devo's got five, and then the six for other outfielders are three for Vernon Wells, two for Jesse Barfield, and one for Sean Green. So oh, they've got yes. they've got the edge. That's like um. That that's late in Vernon's career. It was like the the chase of on the Raptors side, where hey, Kyle Lowry has more triple doubles now than anyone else in in Raptors history. But it's the reverse. Devo lost the the kind of grip on all the Gold Gloves. Um, one last one for you, and we're gonna end on a, on a bit of a maybe not negative note, but an anxious note. Jelani, you are fearful of what a Jays City Connect jersey might look like given what we've seen from some of the other ones around the league. Take me through what you're worried about here. Okay, so we generally don't do so well on Canada Day. I, 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 it's the, I don't know the analytics behind this. <laughs> I don't know why it happens, but we do. And it's, we have objective facts. So I don't know why we should unearth that design aesthetic when it comes down to representing the city, considering it's called City Connect. So... I'm, 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 I'm parking the hope of, of that and amplifying the hope of the Chatham All-Stars. <laughs> and so I'm hoping there's some level of, um, um, some level of uh, honoring of the Chatham All-Stars because anytime I think about them, I think about success. Anytime I think about Canada, I think about, I hope we win. And I don't know if I want to feel that way when I'm buying a jersey. So, um those are my anxieties and those are my wishes for this jersey. 
the Chatham All-Stars is a, is a nice shout-out. They were an amateur uh, baseball team during the 1930s. Um, they were called the Chatham Colored All-Stars at the time. Um, and there's some some really interesting history around them and, and the OBA, uh, the Ontario Baseball Association. They were, uh, in 1934, they broke color barriers as the first black team to win a title in the Ontario Baseball Association. So uh, that would be a cool nod. That's a good one there. One basketball one for you before I let you go. Uh, you had a random run-in with Justin Champagny that turned into a random photo shoot the other day. Uh, are we going to see, I know the on the Raptors side, there's there's been a better job of highlighting, um, you know, the diversity and, and community around the fan base and, and of the players as well. But are we getting a Raptors version of your Black Jays project at any point? Um, or is that well taken care of enough already? And, hey, I guess, uh, are you sure you ran into Justin Champagne and not his twin brother who's in the draft this year? <laughs> I mean, he, I yelled out Justin, and he did turn around. Okay. So I'm going to say that verified as Justin. But in terms of the Raptors project, I mean, my work has is, is, is secondary about sports and primarily about black folks in Toronto. And in Canada. So black folks, we love, there's folks that love all sports. But basketball, yes. And I'd love for that work to sort of fit in that space. I know Charlie and I know Keyshawn make amazing work in that space. But I think there's always room to make other conversations happen around this. So would I love to? Absolutely. During this new generation? Absolutely. And so the answer is yes. Whoever wants to make yes happen, I'm hoping they're listening right now. I hope you get the chance to do that. Um, Jelani Morgan. Photographer, artist, photo director at West End Phoenix, JelaniMorgan.com, Room Upfront, BIPOC photojournalism mentorship program. A million ways to find you. Thanks so much for taking the time out uh, and enjoy this White Sox series, even Tim Anderson-less. Absolutely, Wade. Thanks for having me, man. Have a good one. Thanks, buddy. Jelani Morgan, and you can follow him on his socials and see all his uh, great work at Jelani Morgan uh, as well on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Before we take a break, we have the Jays lineup for today. Uh, They'll take on Lucas Giolito and the Chicago White Sox tonight. George Springer back in center field, leading off. Bo Bichette at short, hitting second. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. back in the lineup at first base. Teoscar Hernandez also back in the lineup, hitting cleanup in right field. Alejandro Kirk gets a DH day. Yes, we're seeing both catchers uh, in the lineup today. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. hits sixth and plays left field. Matt Chapman at seventh, at third base, Danny Jansen behind the plate and hitting eighth, and Kevin Biggio at second base, giving Santiago Espinal uh, an extra day off here. It'll be the first time we've seen Biggio at second in a while. Uh, interesting that we've been talking. Hey, could you work three catchers in? Uh, why why not try the, the two catchers in the same lineup thing? And we get it today. Charlie Montoyo hinted uh, that that might happen. It also happened last Tuesday. Maybe Tuesday is just a good day to get two catchers in. Um, You know, I think sometimes it's a little overstated the risk of putting a catcher at DH. Um, You know, first of all, you would need something to happen to the starting catcher uh, that necessitates a change there. And then, yes, you'd lose the DH spot by making that necessary change. But then you have a pitcher hitting um, later in the game. Maybe you can pinch hit for them. Maybe it's only one plate appearance and you get the extra plate appearances from Alejandro Kirk as the DH versus a Bradley Zimmer or Rymel Tapia in that spot. So um, nice little lineup there. Other than the BGO Espinal swap, I think you'd call that the Blue Jays' best lineup, and they'll need it because Lucas Giolito is uh, having quite a year, quite a pitcher, 
and uh, a guy who is going to try to mow them down in a similar fashion to Kevin Gosman, not necessarily with the repertoire, but with the pound the strike zone, pound the strike zone. Uh, Gosman's in for an interesting matchup against the White Sox tonight because the White Sox swing at everything. They are second in the league in overall swing rate at 49.8%. They are dead last in the league in walk rate as a team. Um, And despite that, they rarely strike out. They strike out the third fewest, the third lowest percentage in all of baseball. They have a very low called strike rate. And again, they swing at everything. So they don't take, uh, they don't get too, too deep into counts. A really interesting profile as a team in general, uh, especially in the, what up until recently has been the three true outcomes era of, Hey, we don't walk and we don't strike out a lot of balls in play. That plays pretty well with a strong defense, a strong defense and a lot of shifting behind Kevin Gosman. And of course he leads the league in swing percentage by far. 58.6% of his pitches get swung at and the splitter and the fastball get missed quite a bit. Uh, hard to get wood on Kevin Gosman's stuff, even when it's in the zone. So it's a little bit of a, you know, similar strategy versus similar strategy with Gossman against the White Sox, where his philosophy is pound the strike zone, pound the strike zone. You can't hit it anyway. And the White Sox philosophy is, well, we're going to jump on anything if it's in the zone and we're, hey, we believe you that you're not going to get a lot to hit. So we're going to try to jump on everything uh, nice and early. So we'll see uh, Gossman's slider as well. Also a very good whiff pitch. Um, more than half of the swings on it this year have been swing and misses uh, predominantly used that against righties. He's only thrown seven against lefties, but um, this is a, a white Sox team that's hit right-handed pitchers a little better. Uh, they've been very anemic against left-handed pitchers, but with Kevin Gosman on the mound, I'm not sure that'll matter a ton because again, it's Kevin Gosman. He's been awesome this year. Really fun pitching matchup ahead. I uh, will tee that up a little bit more in the second hour with Mike Petriello. And uh, as we close out the show, we'll take a break right now. When we come back, a man who can contextualize for us just how rare and just how difficult Kevin Gosman's splitter grip is, that Vulcan grip. He's the king of pitch grips. Eno Saris joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus, which I almost called the fan morning show again, but I avoided it. On Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Nice little afternoon out there. Good day for a baseball game. I still haven't been to one since the Dome opened up, but I got a couple coming this week. Really looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. Uh, I read the Jays lineup out before we came on. It's uh, about what you'd hope for against Lucas Giolito. The only uh, notable non-starter is Kevin Biggio hitting ninth and playing second base. Uh, Santiago Espinal gets a day off. And Alejandro Kirk in a DH as Danny Jansen catches Kevin Gosman. Uh, earlier in the show... We had Chris Black on, and I asked him, hey, if you could go back in time and and get the modern StatCast data we have for any player in Jay's history, who would you who would you pick? And he said Carlos Delgado's exit velocities and Dave Steve's slider metrics. We got a couple responses in the text line at 590-590. A um, couple good choices there. Uh, Fred McGriff's exit velocity was a good one. 
Um, and then uh, a really fun one was um, from Jeff in Whitby, uh, Tony Fernandez's range in the mid-80s, getting a better handle on that. Um, defense is something that, you know, with retro sheet data and stuff, we, we can't we can't go back and, and figure out quite as easily as we can offense and pitching. A uh, guy who knows something about all this stuff and knows a little something about, hey, we mentioned Dave Steve's slider. Well, this guy knows, uh, maybe he doesn't know Dave Steve's slider grip, but he knows everyone else's grips. Uh, from The Athletic, good pal of mine from back in the Rotographs days, Eno Saris, how are you, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. So before we get into the real stuff, I've got to ask you, you were here a couple of years ago, and I know that one of your things is going around park to park and trying out some of the beer offerings that each stadium has. Rogers Center has added more craft beer options for this year, so you got to come back at some point, first of all. But when you came here before, how did it hold up to other parks you'd visited? <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> it, I think I had them ranked second to last or last. It was either them or Yankee Stadium as having the worst uh, beer craft beer offerings in all of baseball. And uh, I, I think that it has to do often with the kind of corporate sponsorship that you get at the park, the the, the big deals that you have. I think that in Toronto, it may even have something to do with the beer landscape, like the laws in Toronto and uh, in Canada in general when it comes to, to beer. The regulations are were always really confusing to me when people try to explain them <laughs> to me. So um, I, I think there's some excuses in place, but I'm glad to see that they're, uh, they're trying a little bit harder now. They're doing their best. There's a, a craft beer corner at section 104 uh, that now has 16 craft beers um, from a handful of different uh, Canadian craft breweries. So is it, is it, is it in cans? Cause that was one thing I, I wrote a piece on this cans are kind of the way to the future because when, when you're asking for a keg, you're kind of asking for something that's kind of tough for a mm -hmm. lot of the smaller craft breweries where you're like, hey, give us enough kegs to for like 10,000 people to drink tonight. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think we're mostly mostly tall cans here. And that's great. I think cans are awesome because they keep the beer fresher uh, longer and uh, they also allow, you know, for selling out, right? So like you can you can supply as much as you can can-wise and then... Uh, if they don't sell the first night, it's not a big deal. And if they sell out, it's not a big deal. It's not the same as having a, a tap handle that's empty, you know? Yeah. I, um, so I know you may be a little biased here being a San Fran guy. And one of my, look, there are a lot of good memories from my time covering the Raptors championship run. But one of my favorite nights was there was a night off in San Fran. And you and I got to take in some of a Giants game. And you kind of walked me through uh, the craft beer tasting at, uh, at the Giants park. Um, are they number one or what's number one if not? Yeah, they're in the top three. They they have a really cool uh, a bar attached to the stadium there called the Public House. And that bar is, I would say, probably the second or third best craft beer bar in San Francisco. <laughs> like, it's really good. Um, and it's it, they allow ins and outs. So it is kind of hard to say if that's if that should count as the entire like you know what i mean like that part of the experience is very good but you also have to walk kind of far to get to it and then far to get back so um in terms of like availability everywhere on the concourse with cool stuff um i think chicago uh, white Sox, that stadium um and seattle uh and san diego 
uh, are right there with San Francisco. Number one is either Seattle or Chicago or San Diego. It's really hard at that point. They're all, they have it everywhere and it's all really good. Well, I will report back on this because I'm going to be in Chicago in a couple weeks and I'm going to be at a White Sox game or two. Uh, So I will report back. Uh, I will do my research in the name of journalism. I will try a bunch of craft beers (laughs) at the White Sox game. Check out the craft beer caves. So the K. Uh, in addition to being the craft beer guy around parks, you're also the pitch grips guy, you know, and I, and I know, um, you've gotten away from this a, a little bit in your work at the athletic, doing a lot of fantasy Q and A's doing a lot of, um, your, your pitching plus metric that I want to get into in a little bit as well. Um, but you've spent a lot of time in clubhouses talking to pitchers about their grips and the different ways to throw different pitches. When you look at Kevin Gosman, first of all, have you ever spoken to Kevin Gosman about his splitter grip? I have. Yes, I have. So how rare is that kind of Vulcan grip on it? Because that looks, it looks painful as hell to throw. I know he's got blisters all the time. What was your conversation with Gosman like about how he throws that splitter? We were talking about it in, in uh, reference to uh, a comparison to a great splitter that we've had out here uh, in Tim Lincecum's splitter. And so he wanted to, we were talking about, you know, how's it, how it looks uh, compared to his. Um, and it's a little bit different because Lincecum really um, like shoved the ball in. It's a, almost like a true fork ball grip where you see the two fingers and the balls in between them. Um, where Gossman's, um, it's, uh, it's something a little different actually. Yeah, it's, uh, it's. A little bit like if you took a circle change grip and then you exaggerated it so much that the the pointer finger disappears. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like a Vulcan change. And, and I think that's how it comes off of his fingers. And that's why it has uh, such devastating movement. Other Vulcan changes uh, that there are in the game right now, Nick Martinez in San Diego throws one. Uh, but the most famous was Kyle Loesch, mm. uh, who used to throw a Vulcan change for the Brewers and some other teams, and uh, so it's not uh, it's not the preferred grip of <laughs> uh, of most, but it is uh, pretty devastating. I think one of the things that people don't like about it is it can be hard to command. Um, that's why it becomes such a breaking ball league. The breaking ball, the slider, is such a is a, is a good devastating pitch by movement, but also a little bit easier to command than a lot of changeups out there. But uh, when when Gossman's going good, I think he's he's found a way to put some touch on that pitch. Yeah, he barely ever throws it outside of the zone, and, and if he does, it's close enough that everyone's kind of got a swing at it. He, he's by far the highest swing rate in the league, and, and despite that, you know he's he's obviously been been excellent this year. And that splitter is still getting whiffs on forty four point four percent of swings against it so far this year. Um, you know, Kevin Gossman's six two. I'm assuming he has bigger hands than I do because I tried to grip the ball like that and it felt very uncomfortable and difficult. Um, and I know that he works with blisters uh, a lot of the time as well. Do you do you figure that's why it's not a more common grip that other than the control, there's a little bit of a strain to it? There, there is some debate. If you actually put the ball in between their front two fingers uh, and then and then just sort of feel by your elbow... You'll notice that just even spreading those two fingers out like that has an impact near your elbow. You'll you'll notice a, a muscle sort of changing shape, moving. There's some that theorize that that means that you are stressing a part of your elbow that you'd lead to more forearm strains. 
Um, there was a, a famous coach back in the 80s that was teaching everybody the split finger uh, and everyone said he injured all his pitchers. But if you look back at if you look back at all the injuries, half of them had nothing to do with arms. You know, <laughs> like one guy injured his leg, and I'm sure that wasn't the split finger. So um, uh, I I wasn't able to to connect that dots when it comes to injury. Um, and I think with command, I think that people don't. I think people what people don't uh, appreciate about command is that it's all relative. That there are almost like there are almost no pitchers that can really place the ball exactly where they want to. It's a question of will I miss by six inches or eight inches on average? The average major leaguer misses his target by thirteen inches. Huh. Um, and so I think what you're seeing with Gossman is not necessarily that he can place it exactly where he wants to, like on a tee, but that maybe the Blue Jays have said, "Hey, why don't you use a higher target?" on on that split finger so that it falls into the zone huh, that's and i it. think that's what i've seen a little bit more out of him uh in toronto than before you mentioned earlier that we've seen fewer change-up style pitches um because the slider is a little easier to locate the breaking ball is a little easier to locate maybe um you also had an article up at the athletic not too long ago called death of the fastball count and in that, you're, you basically got into, hey, a lot of times hitters will try to work a count. So they're in a count where it's a fastball. The pitcher doesn't have a choice because that's the pitch they can locate best and they can't afford to throw another ball. But you're seeing baseball kind of move, move away from that at the macro level. Um, what do you think is going into that change of, hey, a fastball count is now also a slider count sometimes? Yeah, I think it. I think part of it is the the fact that the the game is going away from changeups, and part of that is because of TrackMan and PitchFX. The first the pitches that we can really nail down what makes them good are breaking balls. Mm. We can say this spin rate, this movement, this this that. It's easier to say what makes a breaking ball great than it is to say what makes a changeup great. And so teams have gone towards developing breaking balls and 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 upping the spin rate and doing what they need to do to make those breaking balls better. And uh, that's part one. That's part one of the story. Part two of the story is just we used to throw way too many fastballs. It didn't doesn't make any sense. Why would you tell a hitter what was coming two thirds of the time? We as a league we used to throw fastballs sixty five percent of the time. That's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> why would you do that? So now uh, we're getting closer to a kind of thirty 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 split where. Um, you know, you're just as likely to get a four seam, a two seam, uh, a slider, a curveball, a changeup, any of those things in any in any count, and that that is, I think, more ideal for the pitcher, right? That that makes more sense for the pitcher to keep the hitter guessing at all times. I like that. It's uh, it's the old MLB the show. It's uh, do I max out my stats in one pitch or do I go four or five pitches so I can really junk a guy up and i always went for the uh the ladder there um obviously the, the hitters can adjust to this and eventually they'll they'll kind of see the numbers and they'll see the approach and hey even if it's 30 30 30 30 at least you're not guessing 65 percent of the time anymore that's going to be a fastball i look at a team like the toronto blue jays they've struggled against the fastball this year when you get into some of the stat cast metrics like expected weighted on base average uh, they come out a little better they jump from 22nd in run value to, to 10th in that XWOBA. Uh, they're also a team, though, that has teed off on sliders this year. The number two uh, expected weighted on base average against sliders, we, we've seen it in recent games. Um, there was a game against the Cincinnati Reds uh, last 
not this past weekend, the weekend prior, where Bo Bichette basically only swung at sliders. He was sitting slider the whole time, and it leads to a couple bad swings, but he also hit two of them out of the park in that game. So is if, when you look at that, when you see a team that is sitting slider a little bit more or, or has a couple players sitting slider and they're hitting it well, do you... Is that something where, hey, maybe that team's onto this trend you've pointed out a little early? Maybe it's something that teams are already sitting back and saying, hey, uh, it's we got to look for a slider in these situations and, and we'll sit on it and wait to see it because we know we're going to see it. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are players in the league now that are starting to sit slider. I think that's uh, something that hitters don't really ever want to talk to you about because <laughs> it's really easy to manipulate that you know, if the pitcher knew who's sitting slider never give him one uh but i i think you've seen some hitters develop an approach that's a slightly better against sliders than it against as against four seamers even wander franco just went down with injury but one of the things he does is he pulls sliders and he pushes fastballs which means that basically his his approach is optimized for yanking sliders out of the park and hitting four seamers the other way um, and that's a that's a totally acceptable way of doing things. It's new. It's newer, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it used to be do every all your damage on the four seam. But one thing we're also seeing with the four seam is people are throwing that higher and higher in the zone. And so, especially if you're a low ball hitter, if you're a low ball hitter, I think it becomes makes starts to make more sense to start sitting slider because you're never going to hit that fastball up there, and they're just going to try and get you whiffing, whiffing, whiffing on the four seams high. The other thing that I think of when I th- when I think of what you just said is that Toronto right now is seventh in the big leagues in slider scene. They're nearly seeing a quarter of the pitches they're seeing as sliders. You know, they're only seeing 34% fastball, four-seam fastball, so it's a 50-50 thing, and if you're a good slider hitter, sit slider. Yeah, that makes sense. And look, it's worked for uh, Bo Bichette. And one of the things I'm interested to see tonight against Lucas Giolito, who uh, has kind of bucked that and he, he throws a, a pretty devastating changeup, is that Bo Bichette's been pretty good against changeups too. It's I, I know he hasn't had the best season, uh, but you go back to last year's data and this year's data, and he's he's hit the changeup and sliders really well. So maybe he's maybe despite the struggles, he's way ahead of things. Um, you know, one of the other things you've looked at a lot and been able to quantify is the components that make up pitching and you use this metric pitching plus which is comprised of stuff plus and location plus and all this can be found at the athletic where uh, all your great work can and man i know we're in the same fantasy league in one instance but using your own stuff against you is uh, <laughs> is great i love it i love that tweak uh um hey you're providing the analysis that i'm then trying to draft against you um i always thought that if i and i didn't do this when we were at rotographs together but i always thought if i got you know in enough expert leagues like it would be worthwhile to put out misinformation in some of your stuff so you could <laughs> you could uh, take advantage um but no pitching plus and stuff plus and location plus have been really helpful uh for that kind of thing for especially for hey guys who haven't had the performance yet but the underlying stuff is encouraging and for anyone who doesn't know i, I recommend going to read it for sure but stuff plus kind of looks at hey how well does your stuff move how many swings and misses do you get location plus as you said, pitchers don't hit their spots a ton, but there are good misses and bad misses. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of what, what's gone into building that? Because I know it's changed a little bit over the years. What's been the philosophy and what have you kind of learned through uh, developing this pitching plus metric? Yeah, the the, the toughest thing is um, 
convincing people that it has the value even as you're trying to improve it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we, we have validated the model. It is a, a type of model that most teams have. I know, for example, the Jays have their own stuff plus. Well, here, let me um, let me do a quick uh, sales job for any Jays fans listening that want to believe in Pitching Plus. Kevin Gosman, number one in it as of the May 23rd update. So if you've watched <laughs> Kevin Gosman this year and thought, wow, that guy looks like one of the best pitchers in baseball. Well, boy, do we have the metric for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what we found is uh, it outperforms any uh, projections um, year over year for relievers. So... Uh, I think that makes sense because relievers, there's less uh, deception, less like I have six pitches and I'm going to I'm going to get keep you on your heels. <laughs> you know, relievers are how good is the guy's stuff? Okay, he's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what we've been able to do is outperform projections on relievers with uh, starting pitchers. Basically, about three to four starts into the into the season, it starts beating last year's projections. So. Hmm. Uh, we can do better than that. There's more to be done. But one of the things that we did, for example, this year was add seam shifted wake. And seam shifted wake is um, an effect that comes from the seams of the ball um, that creates basically a seam induced movement uh, that's not in a lot of models. And once we put that in, we found that a lot of change ups and sinkers really improved. So um, whenever there's a new concept that comes up, we try to see how it. Uh, affects our model. We try to see if it improves the model. Um, and, uh, you know, we all, we always have the, the head scratchers, I guess <laughs> the head scratcher, uh, for Jays fans right now is, is Barrios. Yeah. yeah. So and, that, that was one I wanted to ask you about it and not necessarily that he's a head scratcher because the performance hasn't lined up with what the metrics may be seeing, but I'm curious and I didn't go through week to week to week. I, I know you update it fairly regularly, but I'm curious if you guys have found you can catch indicators of, of decline or slump through the changes in that metric. So a uh, Barrios, you know, maybe you can capture, Hey, he, he's, why is he struggling a little bit lately? Is it more on the stuff side, more on the location side? Um, have you been able to do any of that kind of analysis at all? We found that the last 400 pitches is more meaningful than the full season numbers. So there is um, there is a sort of what have you done for me lately aspect uh, to the to this, and uh, there's also some public analysis by Rob Arthur who found that um, fastball velocity can be a can be a predictor of success on a game by game level. So either we're just capturing that bit or we've captured a little bit more of that because there's a little bit of an aspect of, um, you know, when a guy's going well, his stuff is, is ticking up um, and, and that shows in the model. I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, Berrios's stuff is ticking down overall. The one of the last frontiers and I hope to have something uh, released on the athletics soon where people can play around with it this way, but you know, we've got this all by, by, by pitch, right? Mm -hmm. So Barrios right now, you know, in the model, uh, he's got a 107 stuff plus, that's good. 104 location plus, 106 pitching plus. This absolutely uh, puts him on par with someone like Julio Urias in, in uh, LA. Um, and in fact, they have a lot of, a lot of things in, in common. So um, you know, you'd, you'd say roughly they're similar pitchers, especially now with uh, the DH everywhere. Uh, but then you can you can you can actually look per pitch type, 
And his curveball, 124 stuff plus, that's good as ever. The curveball is not the problem. The sinker looks pretty good for a sinker. There's not that many sinkers that score as well as a 105 stuff plus, especially from a, a starting pitcher. Changeup, good stuff plus, can't command it. That's that's stuff we've always known about Barrios, right? So it's the fastball. It's the four-seam fastball. Uh, it's down to a 95 stuff plus. That's a little bit down from last year. Um, it still works as a pitch because he and he needs it because otherwise he can become too t- like sinker curveball and that's it. Um, so he needs it as a pitch. Um, and so I think he just gets in trouble with either people laying off the four seam or seeing it well um, because the curveball is still as good as ever. Because the curveball is still as good as ever, I think he'll he'll write ship. But uh, there is a weakness forming when it comes to his four seam fastball. All right, I got to put you on the spot for one more Blue Jays question related to Stuff Plus specifically. Uh, a couple years ago, maybe not even a couple years ago, it might have been last year. I don't have a great memory for what time is like the last two and a half years. But yeah, right. at one point, I remember getting more excited about Thomas Hatch because he had a pretty good <laughs> Stuff Plus rating. I went back and I looked at the Stuff Plus rating at the end of spring training as well. And I think he had a 107 Stuff Plus, so a pretty good um, again, it's on the 100 scale, so 107 is pretty good there. He's struggled at AAA this year, but give me a model-based reason to still have faith that Thomas Hatch, hey, maybe it's in the bullpen, maybe maybe the starting thing is just behind him now, even though he's still starting AAA, but give me a quick sales job on Thomas Hatch still being a guy. I think I think maybe locations were the problem for yeah. him in terms of uh, connecting that stuff plus to results because I have him here with an 88 Location plus for last year. It's not in a lot of pitches, but that's really bad. That's uh, that's really bad. That's that's reliever territory. That's uh, I don't know if I have a, a comp for you on that one right off my top of my head. But it was the command um, that that kind of sunk him. I think Biagini, for example, had a seventy-eight. So <laughs> there's another name uh, for Blue Jays fans. Um, but. Uh, uh, the the reason why the model liked him, and this is, I think this is still uh, controversial. It really liked his secondary pitches. And so you, this is actually kind of, it's funny because it goes hand in hand what we're talking about earlier. In a world where there, you know, there aren't really fastball counts and you don't need to throw the fastball that often, then the question just is, how many pitches do you have that are good for action, have good stuff? And how many pitches do you have that are good for location? And they don't need to be fastballs. You know what I mean? Um, so I think if there is hope for Thomas Hatch going forward, it's all about slider command. If he can, if he can throw the slider or the cutter, whatever the, the harder breaking ball, if he can throw that four strikes, then he can use, then he can hide the four seam uh, and use the other pitches for swinging strikes. But he needs to have a pitch. Uh, or two that he can throw for strikes, uh, and it probably shouldn't be the fastball because it's 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 an okay fastball when he's relieving. It's an okay fastball by Velo, but it's it's not it doesn't have great shape. Yeah, well, that leaves me not super optimistic. We'll be seeing Thomas Hatch at the Rogers Center uh, anytime soon, uh, but at least we got more craft beer offerings there, right, Eno? <laughs> hey, hey, Pearson's going to Double A. Hey, there we go. Something good. Yeah, there we go. Um, Eno Saris plus stuff and and no command. Yeah, yeah, and no ability to stay healthy. If you had a health plus metric, it'd be it'd be pretty <laughs> poor. Uh, Eno, thanks so much for taking the time this morning, man. Keep up all the great work at the Athletic. All right, thanks for having me, Eno Saris of the Athletic. Uh, hey.
confirms uh, what we were talking about with Chris Black earlier and what, what a lot of our eye tests have said, which is uh, the Jose Barrios fastball is probably the issue right now, and it's making it harder for that curveball and the sinking two-seamer to play off of that. Um, some fun stuff about Kevin Gosman, too. Shocker that a lot of metrics, uh, a lot of different ways to cut up Kevin Gosman's performance so far rank him as one of the best pitchers in baseball. He'll go up against another one of the best pitchers in baseball tonight in Lucas Giolito. We're going to take a break. When we come back on Jay's Talk Plus, Mike Petriello of MLB.com, an occasional sports and contributor, uh, helps us tee up the Blue Jays and the White Sox, Lucas Giolito and Kevin Gosman tonight. That's next on Jay's Talk Plus, Sports at 590 The Fan. Great daily gambling advice from J.D., Blake, and Ailish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Joining me... Now, someone for who there is never too much data to process. Mike Petriello, MLB.com, occasional sports site contributor. Mike, how are you, man? Hey, Blake. I'm great. Congratulations on the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. So uh, I know that your celebrity is, uh, you you like to keep it humble, but Chris Black was on earlier and he told me that you guys were out for beers after a broadcast recently and you got comped because people recognized you out in Toronto? What is going on? I, I didn't I didn't realize the stats guys were getting that level. And I know you're more than a stats guy, but unbelievable. Yeah, we weren't actually, we weren't out in uh, Toronto so much as uh, we tried to go to a bar and it was packed. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just go to the bar in Rogers Center, which I know is not usually like the trendiest <laughs> place to go. And that's where we went. And I apologize because I can't remember the man's name, but he said he used to live in New York and he'd seen me on MLB Network and all sorts of stuff. And when the bill came back, it was definitely lighter than we owed. So we made sure to tip him well. But yeah, yeah. that's true. I can confirm that. Good work, Carries. Unbelievable. Um, Another at-the-stadium story for you. You got to take your son to that Mets game on Sunday because of the long weekend, the the 10th inning walk-off. Man, what an awesome game. I, I I think you said your son's six. So that must My have been six. That must have been an awesome game for him. Also getting to stay up late because it went to extra innings and it was a Sunday nighter. Oh man. So yeah, he's six. He's a baseball nut. Like he, I love baseball, right? I think he loves baseball more than I do. <laughs> and I sort of sprung it on him last minute. It was like four o'clock. I was like, Hey, let's go to the game tonight. You know, you don't have school tomorrow because it's a holiday here in the States. And he's like, great. Got so excited. And we go up there and you know, he was enthralled and a lot of kids would want to leave early, I think. And I kept asking him as it got later, I'm like, you know, it's nine 30. It's almost 10 o'clock. If you're tired, we can go. And he looks at me like, you know, you're nuts. <laughs> and at this point, the, uh, the Mets were winning. And he said, you know, I hope the Phillies tie it because then there'll be a bottom of the ninth and extra innings. And I laughed. And of course, that's what happened. And I can tell you this. When the Mets walked it off, obviously, everybody in the stands went nuts. I'm not a Mets fan, right? Nobody in the stands was happier than I was because (laughs) I didn't have to tell a six-year-old that we had to leave and go home because we couldn't stay there till 3 o'clock in the morning. It was perfect. Great memories. I I have a memory similar but with a worse outcome, which is I think it was the Jays against the Tigers, and I was in like elementary school at that point still, and uh, my dad had to pull the we got to go and listen to the game on the radio on the way home. That was a... That was a tough one. I, I held that against dad for a while. So I'm glad you guys got the end in there. Um, while you were at the Mets game, the Jays were in the process of finishing up a sweep against the Angels. They won five in a row. They won seven to 10, nine to 12. Uh, the bats are coming alive at least a little bit of late. 
You wrote, Mike, over at MLB.com, a, a pretty definitive piece on, on Vlad's cold May and, and that cold two or three week stretch he had there. He has OPS uh, almost 1.1 over these last five. Um, I know you didn't get to see all of the games on the on the long weekend, but when you take a look at, at what he's done over the last little bit, just the blip, are you seeing some of the process changes you were hoping for? I think a little bit of both. I mean, it's hard to put too much into, you know, five games. I think he didn't even start the last one, right? Mm-hmm. Came off the bench. I, I mean, yes and no, right? So I, I went and looked. He's got three extra base hits uh, in the last five games, which which is great. You know, two homers and a double. And I looked at both of those homers, uh, one against the Cardinals and one against Otani. And I got to say, both of those were pitches where the pitcher clearly misread the assignment and missed <laughs> their spots. You know, Verhagen was trying to get the sinker down. It was up. Uh, Otani left a hanging curveball pretty much middle middle and hey credit to Vlad like you still got to take those pitches and do what you need to do and he did right uh, the double off Lorenzen was a change up middle in so I don't think it necessarily showed me that anything was changing in the sense that if you put the ball there he's going to kill it stop putting the ball there if you want to see some small signs of life again Rick looking at 19 plate appearances over a full season but over those 19 plate appearances his ground ball rate is down you know from 51 percent over the season of 42 percent he's chasing less He's swinging less. I saw him talk about this, and he's like, well, I'm expanding the zone. It's not that pitchers are approaching me differently. I feel like both things can be true. <laughs> they are approaching him differently. <laughs> um, and he's he's such a great hitter, I think, that it says a lot that here we are writing and talking about, like, what's wrong with Vlad? And he's like 30% better than league average, <laughs> which says a lot about expectations. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you get a... Yeah, I guess the thing with expanding the zone, too, is you can say that you're expanding the zone and pitchers aren't pitching you differently. But guess what they're going to do if you expand the zone? They're going to pitch you differently. Uh, And Vlad's, uh, you know, his swing rate on low and away stuff was particularly what stood out to me, where it's like, yeah, that's stuff you can hit, but it's not stuff you can drive. And that's, you know, it's got to be tough as a guy with really good plate coverage. You can kind of get as bad on everything is, you know, how do you lay off something you you think you can probably poke into the outfield for a single and, you know, maybe you don't get that that hanger to to bang over the wall. Uh, it, it's a tough one. I, I'm not that good. So I, I never had to make that decision myself. It was, you know, anything you could. Honestly, if I if I'm being completely truthful, it was just try to draw a walk every time and keep the bat on your shoulders. But the the trade off there of you know leaving something to hit for something to drive it has got to be a tough one uh, for players. Now you mentioned a couple things there that you you looked at as a snapshot of the weekend. Is there kind of a first thing you go to, whether it's Statcast or, or somewhere else, when you're trying to examine if a player is actually coming out of a slump? Is there like like what's your What's your first piece of the diagnostic there? Well, in Vlad's case, it was easy because we already knew what the problem was, right. or at least what we perceived the problem to be. You know, swing decisions. Where Where is he being pitched? Where is he swinging? So that's like the first step. Has that changed? Um, and then, like I said, you know, he's swinging less. He's chasing less. That's what you want to see. You want to be able to have him lay off those pitches, which I think is really hard for him because he's such an elite bat-to-ball guy. Like, we don't talk about that enough. We talk about how great... You know, his exit velocity is now hard he hits the ball. And obviously that's part of what makes him such a star, but he does it without these massive strikeout rates. I go back to that game in New York where he hit three home runs. And one of them was on this ball that was like way in on his hands. Like it was absurd. He even swung at it, much less took it out of the park. And I looked at that as being like, that's such a great example of what makes him great. But I think also at the same time, his ability to do that maybe hurts him at times because 
ideally you want to let that pitch go by. You want to get ahead in the count. Most guys can't turn on it like he can. He even he can't do it all the time. So, you know, as far as what I'm looking at, since you know what the problem is, is is he making changes? I would say very slightly yes. But again, it's got to be more than over like a road series to see if it's anything real. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, another good test tonight with, with Lucas Giolito on the hill. Um, quite a pitching matchup, honestly. Gosman against Giolito. Uh, that's a fun one. It, it doesn't get uh, too much better than that in terms of battle of the aces here. Um, what are you looking for in this one? What's I, I know Giolito has been Giolito for a couple seasons now, but it kind of feels like and looks like in some of the surface level numbers that he's taken a step forward this year. You know, he has, and he, you know, he's kind of famous for being a guy who came up and just struggled so badly that yeah. first year. And when he came up with the White Sox, and you're like, wow, this, this guy's not going to make it. And all of the credit in the world goes to him for like remaking himself and putting the work in and saying, okay, where am I successful? So it's like, he's the sort of guy I would never look at career stats for because the pitcher right. that existed for the first couple of years just does not exist anymore. What's interesting about him to me. Uh, is that you know he's using this fastball changeup combination to miss bats, and he's he's doing a really good job of it. You know, thirty three percent strikeout rate is fantastic. A twelve per nine K per nine, if that's how you like it, is fantastic. So he's going to get his strikeouts. There's no doubt about that. But he is interesting in the sense that if you can make contact, you have a decent chance of doing some damage. He's yeah. kind of like Max Scherzer in that way. You know, Scherzer gives up his fair share of home runs. So you know, you look at Giolito uh, just this year and last year. He's allowed thirty three home runs. That's tied for the fifth most obviously there's a little bias in that number in that he's good enough to continue pitching that much to be yes. allowed to give up 33 homers uh, but if you want to go to a little more of an advanced stat there's one called uh, batting average on contact it's like BAPIP, but including home runs his is 384 and that is one of the five or five or ten i can't remember the highest in baseball one of the guys above him is dallas keichel who just lost his job yeah you know so it's like he's giving up loud contact also part of it is the white Sox defense has been an absolute train wreck behind him so it's not all about him but it's going to come down to how many bats can he miss tonight he's not the kind of guy who's going to get weak contact he's not going to get a ton of grounders you know what i mean he is going to give up loud contact if he gives up contact which he's very good at avoiding yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting stat profile. And, and you know, uh, if if you're so inclined, you can fire up baseballsavant.mlb.com and you go on a player's page. And hey, even if you don't care that much about what the specific max exit velocity is or what the, you know, XWOBA or whatever, you get this handy little chart in the top right corner of guys' percentile rankings. And you can see, hey, Lucas Giolito, 94th percentile in strikeout rate. I don't think you know you need much stats to know that that's good. 94th percentile in whiff rate, uh, same kind of thing. And then you see some of the batted ball stuff, and he's average to below average. Uh, on the other side of things, Kevin Gosman has an interesting strategy versus strategy matchup tonight against the White Sox. Um, Kevin Gosman has induced the highest rate of swings in the league this year, and it's not even close. He's all over the zone. He doesn't throw a lot of balls batters are swinging at pretty much everything. 58.6% of pitchers are getting swung at, and they just can't do much with it. On the other side, the Chicago White Sox basically approach every plate appearance as if it's against Kevin Gosman and you got to swing at everything. Uh, they're, they're second in overall swing rate. They're 30th in walk rate. They barely strike out because they don't go very deep in counts. Um, what's the key for Gosman against a White Sox team that is going to come up like, does this play into Gosman's hand because they're so aggressive or is this the kind of team that could maybe nickel and diamond because they're coming up ready to try to put bat on ball early? Well, I think you actually undersold the situation there and because Tim Anderson's hurt now mm -hmm. right? and he's, 
if not their best hitter, one of their best hitters. So the bottom third of their lineup tonight, uh, old friend Reese McGuire, hey. Josh Harrison, and Danny Mendick, who's playing shortstop. It, there's a lot of stars here, but think about who's not playing. Like I mm-hmm. said, Anderson, Luis Roberts not playing. Eloy Jimenez is hurt. You know, obviously on the pitching side, you've got a couple of pitchers who've chosen not to be available in Canada. This is <laughs> a weakened White Sox team. And I don't want to say that that makes it easy or anything. You know, like you look at the top of the lineup, you know, Abreu, Vaughn, Yasmani Grandal, they're still pretty good, but you have Jake Berger hitting cleanup. You know, that's that's not the White Sox lineup we thought we were going to get. So the offense is down. The defense is terrible. The pitching, as I said, is is weakened because Kendall Graveman won't be there out of the bullpen. You won't see Dylan Cease. This is a White Sox team that, you know, they might be wearing the same black and white uniforms of the team that won the division last year, but they do not look like that same group in any way. Yeah, the Jays know a little bit about uh, weak-hitting lefties who just have to be in the lineup hitting in spots they shouldn't be hitting in. Uh, this has been the year of the <laughs> Zach Collins cleanup hitter, uh, Rymel Tapia hitting fifth. So to see Reese McGuire in the seven hole, um, not only because it's Reese McGuire, it's going to feel pretty familiar for uh, for Jays fans. So I, I take it you like the chances uh, of Gosman having a, yet another pretty good start here tonight. I mean, I've been doing this long enough to not to go and assume that any pitcher is going to like, you know, throw a no hitter, but I don't know. I'm feeling pretty confident about it. Tonight. Yeah, that's great. And, and look, you're on the, you're on the right show for that kind of confidence. Um, I want to ask you on the Jays side of the lineup, um, Danny Jansen starting behind the plate, but Alejandro Kirk's DHing. We, we've seen this occasionally, not very often. It, it's been a week since the Jays last did it. Charlie Montoyo kind of hinted that they might do it again. Uh, they didn't on Sunday in a spot you might think they would use it because Vlad and Teo were both out. Uh, we found out after it's because Jansen was dealing with a minor hip thing. Um, I know a lot of managers are hesitant to use both catchers and, and one at the DH spot in case, you know, catchers a, a tough position physically. Um, but when you look at the Jays catching situation, Kirk's OBP profile, how well Danny Jansen's hit the ball since he came off the IL late last year. Um, Would you advocate for the Jays using this kind of lineup more often because both of their catchers have hit so well? Yeah, obviously it's always a risk if you do or don't have a a third catcher. And I don't think Collins is active right now. So it's easier if you do have that third catcher. I don't mind it in the sense of do you have someone coming off the bench? Because in the, you know, you look at the lineup right now, Espinal's not starting lineup. So you have someone pretty decent who can come off the bench as long as you don't worry too much about the injury risk. But it's kind of fascinating to see if I look at, you know, Kirk and, and Jansen for most of their careers, you say to yourself, which one's the better defender? it's probably Jansen without really thinking about it that much because, mm-hmm. you know, Kirk does not have a great throwing arm. He's not really great at stopping opposing runners. But if you look at the work he's put in behind the plate to improve his defensive framing, it's been noticeable, you know, and Thanks I know so. we're talking about a couple of partial seasons here, so let's not like overweight how much this is, but I would say he was pretty clearly below average that first year he came up about average last year. And you look up the numbers this year, he's been above average. He's actually been, pretty good now, i know it's not how it's going tonight kirk is going to dh chance and it's going to catch obviously uh, but as far as having them both in the lineup i think you know kirk has been one of their best hitters over the last couple of weeks and what jansen is doing is obscene if we can forget any you know fashions of worrying about minimum plate appearances you go back to the all-star game last year the best hitters in baseball of anybody who's had 100 plate appearances taylor ward danny jansen mike <laughs> trout bryce harper now 
Sandy Jansen's at 113. Bryce Harper's had 503. Let's not go nuts here. But what he's been doing has been really impressive. And to me, it's not just about how hard he's hitting the ball. It's that he's dropped his strikeout rate. I kind of thought he'd sell out for power, and it really hasn't been that at all. No, it hasn't been. And, and, you know, during that, I I know you mentioned the plate appearances. So you go back to August 31st of last year when he's activated off the IL from that hamstring injury. And he's only played 31 games since then, even though it's kind of three full calendar months. So it's not much, but he has a 374 OBP during that stretch, 14% strikeout rate and a seven and a half percent walk rate. You see the process stuff underneath. And no, he's not going to slug 773 uh, for forever, I don't think. Um, But yeah, the process stuff underneath it so um you mentioned some of the hard hit stuff how big a change do you think it's been for him because not only is he hitting it harder and hitting the ball in the air more but he's kind of turned into a dead pull hitter well you know it's interesting because i've seen a lot of blue jays twitter kind of making the now he's jose bautista jokes you know (laughs) and i looked into his numbers kind of expecting to see that and the pull percentage at least by the data is not as up as wildly as I kind of thought it would be. You know, like it's up a little bit, but it's not dead pull in the sense of like Brian Dozier is the kind of guy I always think about. Is it 61% of his balls in play have been pulled since that date I mentioned late last year? Okay, since since that day, maybe I was just looking at seasonal averages then. But w- what's really interesting to me is it's it's less about that horizontal angle of pull, not pull, and more about where he's hitting the ball vertically because his ground ball rate is pretty much identical to the way it's always been. But his line drive rate is way down, like down by you know three quarters from what his usual career average is. He's hitting everything in the air. He's hitting two thirds of the ball in of his of his batted balls in the air, and I mean like high enough in the air to not be line drives to be fly balls. Thirty percent of those are going for home runs. This is a guy with a career average of fifteen percent. Is that going to maintain? I'm going to tell you no. It's not. Doesn't mean I don't buy into his breakout a little bit. I do. Because for me, his issue has always been health more than talent, more than skill. He's always banged up in some way or another. But mostly when I look at his profile, the thing that stands out to me is why on earth would you throw this man a fastball? He is destroying fastballs. And you can already see it the last couple of days. He's been getting less. And I'm interested to see how Giolito attacks him tonight. Yeah, Giolito, because like you mentioned, he's a guy who if you can get the the bat on the ball – it's going to go far. It's uh, He's at a, almost an 18% home run per fly ball right this year. I think the encouraging thing with Jansen is obviously he's going to come down to earth. But if at this point, like all this new data, his last 100 plate appearances, which is like an eighth of his major league career, uh, you know, if that's setting our new baseline to, hey, he's even an average to slightly above average hitter, that that's such a big thing at the catcher position, um, especially playing off of Alejandro Kirk. Um, Mike Petriello. Way, way, way above average as a guest on Jay's Talk Plus. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time uh, this afternoon, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, Blake. Thanks a lot. Best of luck with the show. Mike Petriello, MLB.com, occasional Sportsnet contributor. So we kind of teed up Gosman against Giolito there. I'll run down the Jays lineup again just so you have it. Uh, Springer starting in center field and leading off. Bo Bichette. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. back at first base. Teoscar Hernandez back in right field. Alejandro Kirk hits fifth and gets the designated hitter assignment. Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Matt Chapman, Danny Jansen behind the plate and hitting eighth. Yes, both catchers in the lineup. And then Kevin Biggio hitting ninth and playing second as Santiago Espinal gets an extra day off. It's Gosman against Giolito on the White Sox side. Luis Robert activated but not in the starting lineup today. Tim Anderson 
to the IL. I know Dylan Cease in this series. I know Kendall Graveman, who's been one of their best relievers and has been their most heavily used reliever uh, due to vaccination status. They're not in Toronto for this series. So that's a bullpen that has, uh, you know, struggled outside of their top four. And that's now a top three because Graveman's not there. So if the Jays can get to Giolito early um, and get into the bullpen for this series, that's a, a nice way to keep the bats rolling. If you're looking at Giolito's profile and you're wondering, hey, who could be in for a good night tonight for the Blue Jays? Uh, a name that stands out is Bo Bichette. Bo Bichette, over 2021 and 2022, has terrific numbers against changeups. Yes, he struggled with the fastball a little bit this year. Um, he has had some success against sliders recently, uh, but you zoom out and take a take a last year and this year look at Bo Bichette, and he does really, really well against changeups. Giolito's a heavy changeup guy. Uh, it's a deadly changeup, but maybe you like Bo Bichette's uh, chances uh, of getting one of those and taking it for a ride. His over-under on total basis for tonight is one and a half at a minus 110 line. So basically a, a coin flip line for Bo to get over one and a half total bases. Uh, interesting one there on a night where, you know, you maybe don't expect a lot of offense. Maybe you want to play the home run props because, again, Lucas Giolito has a home run per fly ball rate up almost around 18%. Uh, but he's a guy who misses a lot of bats, so maybe you're not that comfortable with that. Uh, just how many bats do these guys miss tonight? Uh, Giolito's strikeout total is uh, the over-under is set at 5.5 with uh, a little extra juice going on the under because that might push up to 6 even. Uh, Kevin Gosman set at 6.5. The more interesting one, I think, on the Gosman front is you can look and you can get over-under on total outs recorded. So Gosman's is 18.5. That would mean he needs to go at least 6 and a third. Uh, to hit the over. Yes, this is a Chicago White Sox team that will swing a lot to try to put bat on ball, but they are dead last in the league in walk rate. They are second in the league in swing rate. They don't strike out a ton, so maybe you don't feel comfortable with this strikeout props on the Gosman side. But if you look at a team that swings early, swings often, and doesn't have anywhere near their best foot forward tonight, again, their lineup is Yasmani Grandel. Andrew Vaughn, Jose Abreu, Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets, Adam Engel, Reese McGuire hitting seventh, Josh Harrison, and Danny Mendick. Uh, not exactly the White Sox you expected coming into the year. If you look at that group and say, hey, if these guys are swinging aggressively, swinging early, uh, this could be an efficient Gosmanite. I won't go all the way to say uh, he's got a Maddox in the mix, but if he's through six innings and he's in the 70s for pitches, I wouldn't be entirely surprised. So again, his over-under is set at 18 and a half outs which means you got to go six and a third to get the over. And that's at plus 100. That's at even money. So um, that's an interesting one there. Again, it maybe figures to be a lighter offense night with these two pitchers on the hill. And what a beautiful evening for it. I can see just out the window here and it's a little windy, but a nice sunny day for a game uh, for a pitcher's duel, perhaps Kevin Gosman and Lucas Giolito. Um, so thank you. Uh, to the guests we've had on today. It's been a fun show. We had Chris Black, Sportsnet producer, uh, who again, follow at Down to Black uh, on Twitter for some great Twitter threads that blend analytics and video stuff and, and kind of eye test stuff. Uh, we had Jelani Morgan on, who's doing a great photo series called Black Jays over at West End Phoenix uh, throughout the season. Eno Saris from The Athletic, who has a pitching metric that has Kevin Gosman as the best pitcher in baseball. So uh, we like it. We approve of Eno's metric for that reason. And um, we have Mike Petriello on, who is seeing some, but not all of the process changes he may have wanted to see after writing uh, that piece last week about Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s struggles at the plate. So um, check those out. Check those people out. If you missed the chunk of the show, check it out on the podcast uh, under the Blue Jays Talk 
banner. Uh, fun game tonight ahead. Blair and Barker have Jay's talk post game after tonight's game. Uh, and we've got another fun lineup tomorrow. Julia Kreitz, Drew Fairservice, Keith Law to give us the prospect rundown. And Ben Ennis, who's coming into the studio right after me here. Uh, thank you to producer JR and Derek on the board. Thank you for listening to day two of Jay's Talk Plus. Looking forward to having our first show tomorrow where uh, it's off a of game night and teeing up a game. Thanks for listening along. I've been Blake Murphy. This is Jay's Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.